0: Friends, welcome back here at Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. I'm your host, Stéphane Dubier, and I would like to tell you right here, right now, that you, yes, you are beautiful. You might shake your head saying, oh, no, 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 not me. I don't look like Kim Kardashian or a supermodel or whatever it is you have been indoctrinated to believe to be beautiful. But I am here with my guest Vicky today to tell you that it's all based on an illusion, a mere creation by a society that still believes in ideals, boxes, standards, and norms. How many people do you personally know who actually meet this Irrational standard. How many people, if you walk outside your house right now, actually look like the quote-unquote perfect specimen of a human being? Now, close your eyes and think about what you consider to be your own so-called imperfections. Sadly, I bet this was an easy task because we tend to learn at an early age that we are far from perfect as far as societal norms go. It comes easy to us to criticize ourselves, sometimes to even loathe ourselves. Self-love, on the other hand, boy, how many of us have spent a giant chunk of time and money loathing who we are, before we finally, eventually, realize that we fell for one of our world's biggest scams. The scam of perfection. For many of us, it is a painful and long road to finally falling in love with who we truly are. Today's episode is a lot about facing yourself, holding up a mirror without the irrational fear of your own appearance. My wonderful guest Vicky was born in 1977 with a cleft lip, just like one in 700 babies. Let me tell you, Vicky is a beautiful woman, but it took her a long time to finally embrace her cleft as a part of who she is, as a part that may not meet the so-called norms, but one that does not in any shape or form take away from her own beauty. Vicky was able to put in a whole lot of work to heal from past trauma, to turn her own pain into wisdom and that wisdom into something she now gives back to others in the facial difference community. She's happily married, she lives in Washington and Vicki is a strong believer that through the hard work of learning more about yourself you can in fact build a fulfilling and emotionally supported life for yourself. Let that sink in. If you put in the work to learn more about yourself you can put the key to happiness and fulfillment into your very own hands. How incredibly powerful is that? Thoughtvolutionists, I cannot wait for you to meet this tough, kind, strong, and caring woman. Before we begin to embark on Vicky's journey, though, I would really love for you to acknowledge something you truly love about yourself. Ask yourself what makes you unique and beautiful, and then try to embrace it wholeheartedly. Now, let's meet Vicky. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about facial differences, bullying, and emotional violence. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Hi, Vicky. Thank you so much for being here. I would like to start out by asking who some of your role models are. Who are people you feel inspired by or people you look up to? Well, thanks so much, Stefan, for
1: having me. I'm really excited for our talk today. And really, I have two people who are my role models. My mother is the the first and I would suppose most prominent role model that I have. She really worked hard to instill in me a sense of self-assuredness. I have the ability to handle whatever life would bring my way. She was a very strong woman and the way that i grew up she actually was the one that worked outside of the home my dad actually stayed home with me so he was a stay at home dad in the 70s and 80s and that was uh, pretty rare so she was the one that was out working and really provided me with witnessing her strength her ability to manage you know not only working full time but managing the care of a child that had some intense medical issues and also had a softness to her that let me i would say kind of grow into the woman that I would become. And she really fostered that exploration and that growth for me. The other one is actually my daughter. And she really has been the precipice of me delving into my trauma from being born with a bilateral cleft lip and palate and working through that in order to be a better parent to her. And so... Kind of I have my bookends. I have I have my mother from my early stages of life and now I have my daughter that has helped me become even more authentic, honest person and parent to be the best parent I can for her.
0: We will talk about your cleft lip and everything being born with facial features that differ from the quote unquote norm meant for you in a little bit. But tell me this. What would you consider an imperfection? And where do your own imperfections lie?
1: Well, that is a good question. And right off the bat, something that's registering with me is actually from your episode that you did with Suzanne on grief and her work sort of within the grief space and helping others navigate that, where she talked about the importance of language and the words that we use to either describe a grief process or something that has happened in our lives. And so, one of the things that I've been thinking about actually quite recently is if I could get rid of two words in the world vernacular, English language, other languages, is the words perfect and normal. Because honestly, there is no such thing as perfect and normal, I believe, when it comes to ourselves. And I suppose if I had to describe something as imperfect, That can be kind of a challenge for me because then, of course, you know, on the flip side, it's inferring that something is in fact perfect. We all have differences. We all have "quote unquote" flaws. We're all completely unique. And I suppose maybe instead of something that I would describe as imperfect, I might change the word and say that with the word "imperfect," it implies that there's something wrong and not okay or not acceptable. And so I have a real hard time describing something of myself as to be imperfect because truly there's nothing wrong with the way that any of us are are born. And perhaps I wish then that as a society we could change that language, change the way we talk about it, change the words that are used when we describe something and just omit the, the use of the word perfect or normal.
0: That is a very good point that you're making and I couldn't agree with you more. Our language should definitely change to to reflect the values that we should hold as a society. And words like perfect, imperfect, normal have nothing to do with who we are as people. Now, you were born in California, but you now live in Washington. How did that come about and Do you still consider yourself a transplant, or is Washington very much home now?
1: Well, I was born in California, like you said, but I lived there really just for a few months of my life, and my parents ended up moving to Oregon, and I grew up in a small town outside of Eugene, Oregon, and lived there really until my early 20s, and so I just like to think of the Pacific Northwest as my home, where I live in Washington along the Columbia River Gorge very much similar to the area that I grew up in, you know, lots of trees and rivers and mountains and all of that. And I just like to consider, you know, both states, my home, my mom still lives in the same house I grew up in. And yeah, it's a beautiful place to live. Lots of green.
0: <laughs> you were born with a cleft lip. For those not fully understanding what that means, can you shed some light?
1: Yes, I was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate. Uh, Those are two separate things. And I'll get into the brief description of of my uh, situation, and then I can give you a little bit more information. So I was born with a bilateral cleft lip, which means I had two openings on my lip. I'm not an expert in genetics or, or obstetrics, but uh, in the womb, uh, usually between four to 10 weeks is where a lot of the facial features are forming for a baby. And during that time, for those that are born with a cleft, the lip doesn't close completely all together and it's left with you know a cleft or a gap. And mine was a bilateral, which means two. So I had two openings on my upper lip, as well as a bilateral cleft in my palate, the upper roof of my mouth. So that was my particular situation. And there can be variations of that. Some people can be born with just a cleft lip. So just an opening in the lip with a fully intact palate. Others can be born with a cleft palate, but an intact lip. And then there's also, like I said, I have a bilateral, which means two openings. There's also unilateral, which means one opening on lip palate or both. And depending on the severity and how far back in the mouth they go, there are some other variations, but that's a, a basic overview of what a cleft is. And real quick, I will say that a lot of people think that clefts happen you know that it's very rare but actually in fact it's one in 700 babies are born with a cleft of some type worldwide and so it's actually quite common along the same occurrence as down syndrome so it's it's something that happens well the science is very difficult on clefts because it's very hard to know actually what causes them they can be genetic it can be environmental in my case there was no history of cleft at all in either of my mother or father's side of the family. And so her doctor at the time thought that it was an environmental cause. And other families have you know clefts that they can trace back multi-generations. So it really is, although common, the, the root cause is still very much unknown. And there's ongoing research trying to determine you know, what that actual cause is.
0: How many corrective medical procedures did you have to endure, and how does the cleft lip and cleft palate impact your life from a health standpoint?
1: Yes, I had a total of 13 surgeries over my life. It's very common that first surgeries happen for babies, and I'll just speak for my specific situation. I was three months old when I had my first surgery, and that was to correct the cleft in my lip. Then around the uh, one-year-old mark, I had my palate repair. And I ended up having to have a second lip repair because the surgeon at the time was trying to close both clefts in my lip at the same time. And being a baby and, you know, moving around and all that sort of thing, uh, one of the sides actually reopened. And so I had to go back in for a second lip repair at that point. And My final surgery was a bone graft, and that was done for me around 13, 14 years old. These days, it's done much earlier. Bone graft is taking bone, usually from a hip, and implanting it into the front palate of the upper palate in order to provide stability for teeth development and all of that. And so that was my final surgery. And honestly, Stefan, I can't even tell you what the ones were in between that sort of the level of medical trauma that I have, and I'm sure many listeners will can relate, is you end up kind of, you know, blacking out a lot of that. You don't have a lot of clear memories of all the other procedures that that came in between there. And before I get into the health effects of having a cleft, I will say that the number of surgeries is very dependent on the severity of the clefts. Some kids that I come in contact with have had upwards of 25, 30 surgeries, and other kids will have three. So it really just depends on, you know, how involved lip, palate, or both the situations are. Medically speaking, though, being born with a cleft is quite a challenge, especially as a baby. Uh, When I was born, the hospital didn't know what to really do. And they didn't have a way to feed me because having an open palate means that you can't create proper suction. So breastfeeding or feeding by a bottle is extremely difficult, if not impossible. And so the hospital at that time, again, this is back in the late 70s, they gave my mother a lamb's nipple, like what you would use to feed a baby lamb, because it was longer and could reach further back to where I wouldn't have to work as hard to create the suction to get milk. And so feeding is one of the biggest issues that parents born you know, with a newborn baby with a cleft have to struggle with. And it can be really difficult, and especially in underdeveloped countries that don't have the access to the medical care that we have here in the United States. It's not uncommon for babies to pass away because they can't get enough food. Breathing is another issue, again, depending on the severity of the cleft. And then, of course, you know, as the child grows, you know, there's dental issues that go along with that. But feeding is the primary main concern right from the get-go in order to get the baby growing and, you know, getting the nutrition it needs to, to continue to thrive.
0: Overall, how would you describe your childhood? What was life like for somebody who looked, quote-unquote, different than all the other kids? Take us back with you.
1: Well, honestly, my childhood was wonderful. I had two loving parents, a very supportive home, and at least within the four walls of my house, I never felt different. I never felt othered. I was just me. I was also an only child, so I was able to receive you know, all of the attention from both my mom and dad. And I grew up, even though I was born in California, like I said, I grew up in a small town outside of Eugene, Oregon, and it was very small. I think back then at that time, it was probably around 2,000 people. So I was able to have a little group of friends. And I don't really recall the initial, well, I don't really recall being made to feel different until I entered school. So my overall childhood was very loving, very supportive because my parents created a safe space for me to you know thrive and to return to after being out in the world. So looking back, I, I always have fond memories and feelings about my
0: childhood growing up. You mentioned a lot of trauma that you had to overcome. Did that begin in your childhood? Now, without wanting to trigger you, of course. Can you remember some of the most traumatizing things that happened to you?
1: Yes, that that's a big question. And speaking for myself as a person that, you know, endured many medical procedures over my young life as well as trauma on the emotional side of things, you know, from others and specific specifically bullying. Yes, both both started in my childhood, and I have you know an example on the medical side of things, as well as on the personal side of things that I'd like to to mention here. Uh, on the medical side of things, there was one instance when I was seeing a dentist, and that's for me where a lot of my medical sort of trauma lies. is, is in regards to dentists. All the dental work that I've had, because that really had been and has been the most ongoing part of my cleft journey. But I remember a time I was very young, probably six or seven. And for some reason back then, they wouldn't let parents come back with their kids during this particular or in this particular office. And so I remember very clearly having to be held down in the dentist chair in order for them to do whatever exam. needed to do or whatever procedure they needed to do. That was extremely traumatic. On the uh, more personal side, I can remember, you know, if I close my eyes, I can remember as if it's really happening now the first time I was ever called ugly by someone. I was in first grade and having come from, as I explained in the answer to the previous question, you know, I had a very safe, loving, supportive household and in One of my first, um, you know, experiences outside the home with other kids, I'm immediately hit with, you know, a verbal attack of being called ugly, and I couldn't figure out why, you know, where that came from, what that really meant, and why someone would be so cruel. And then later on in life, uh, around oh, I think it was a freshman in high school, a friend and I went out to an 18 and under dance club because. I love music. I love to dance. It was a fun thing that we could do in our town. And she knew the DJ that was going to be there that night. And so we get there and we, or she sees her friend and we go up to the DJ booth and she's saying hello and talking. And I could tell from the moment he looked at me two things that he had never seen someone with a cleft before and that he saw it as an opportunity. So In that situation, my gut was already kind of, you know, raising some red flags for myself that I wasn't comfortable there. And we were about getting ready to leave. And the DJ looks at me and he says, oh, hey, come here. Still, Stefan, I don't know why I went over there. But I walked over to him and he like placed his hands on my shoulders and turned me around. And so my back was to him, but I was facing my friend and one of his friends and he gathered up my hair it was long he gathered up my hair into a ponytail and swished it from side to side and made the sound woof woof and i was just so he was basically calling me a dog but i was just dumbfounded i didn't really know what to do my friend said something i couldn't even tell you what it was and we ended up leaving and then leaving the club but that was something that you know still has stuck with me today and you know, it's a hard thing to process because it really doesn't make sense. And, um, but yeah, those those were some events from my youth that really did cause a lot of trauma and a lot of heartbreak.
0: First of all, I would like to say that I'm very sorry this happened to you. I'm very sorry that cruelty is still something that happens to so many people out there that people think it's funny to make fun of other people for their differences. I will say this though, Oftentimes, it says a lot more about those people than it does say about the person who is mocked or ridiculed. And yeah, I, I I know we cannot turn back time, we cannot undo that situation. But I'm just I'm very sorry that happened to you. Now, how did you address and process that trauma? Well, I'd like to be able to tell you
1: that I worked through it then and was able to fully process it then. But the truth is, is I just internalized it and. I built up yet another layer of armor between me and the outside world. I really worked hard at not acknowledging my cleft at all for most of my life. It was something that I, you know, at times wished had never happened. And so I thought if I didn't talk about it, if I didn't address it, then it would somehow magically, you know, go away and not be something that people would see or be a defining part of who I am, at least, you know, on the physically. So I wish I could tell you that I I was able to really work through it, but I wasn't. And then what ended up happening over time is you find different coping mechanisms to deal with all of that internalized trauma, some good, some bad. And it really hasn't been until, gosh, after I turned 40, Uh, And like I mentioned, you know, with my daughter being confronted with some issues that she was having to deal with. And my reaction was not at all on the level that it should be. And I realized that I was bringing a lot of my own baggage into her situation. And that was my sign that I needed to finally do work on myself and address and acknowledge the trauma that I experienced growing up, you know, again, both on the medical and personal side of things.
0: People say that children can be so cruel. Would you say that you had to face more cruelty from children when you were younger, or even now, or from adults regarding your facial differences?
1: It's just been something that I've had to deal with my entire life. So when I was young, a lot of the lingering looks, stares, comments came from my peers because that's who I was around all the time. I don't recall at least when I was a child, ever hearing or witnessing an adult say something to me. I don't know, you know that's actually something that I haven't addressed with my mom if she ever received rude comments from people. but yeah, it's just it's kind of like an evolution as I've grown my interaction with the peer my peers, you know, we've all grown and things become different. When I was young, you know, a real easy thing that bullies would call me is ugly. That's an easy, you know, an easy thing to say. But then as I got older, you know, the insults would change into being a little bit more pointed, a little bit more cruel. And then, you know, of course, being stared at, being whispered about those kinds of things have gone on. I will say that really by the time, again, because I grew up in such a small town, sort of like the novelty of me wore off eventually because I went with many of my classmates from first grade all the way to graduating high school. So unless a whole bunch of new kids came in, a lot of, you know, big instances of bullying really died down, oh, probably by eighth grade. And I did have a very good group of friends where I did feel, you know, safe with them. Although, like I mentioned, I didn't talk about my cleft at all, but they were, you know, they were my safe space and my group that I could, I had a sense of belonging with, which is so important really for anybody, but especially someone that is dealing with, you know, being othered for whatever reason that is, be it a visible difference, you know, or anything like that. As I've gotten older and into adulthood, I have kind of realized, I was just doing some reflecting on this the other day, that because as a child, I had to be so hyper-vigilant, I felt that I had to be so hyper-vigilant of always looking out for where the next attack was going to come from, you know, someone going to say something or look at me the wrong way, I continued to carry that hypervigilance even now. And as an adult, I would constantly be scanning wherever I was looking for the signs of, oh, that person's looking at me, or I can see that look on someone's face. They're thinking something negative about me, or this group of people are talking, kind of whispering, but they must be talking about me. So I was actually projecting my fear onto a situation that looking back, There was none of that really going on, and so that was kind of the, or has been the lingering effect of the bullying and teasing that I experienced when I was young. Is it has you know informed how I interact and behave when I'm out with others, and so often, especially you know in my 20s, and you're going out and you're meeting people and hanging out with different groups of friends. There was always a comment about me like, oh, you know, she is nice. You just have to get to know her first. And, you know, I always thought, well, I've never been one that's been kind of, you know, you meet someone new and all of a sudden they're your best friend. But now I know that really was because I was in a constant mode of trying to protect myself from whatever incoming insult, threat, you know, or instance of being bullied wherever I was. And so I, I did not have my guard down. My guard was always up. You know, my layers of armor between me and whoever I was with was very thick and i'm not exactly sure if that will really ever go away just because of you know the longevity of which i've had to deal with comments and stares and all that you know from from my youth
0: it is said when something is repeated often enough we eventually start believing it whether it's something we tell ourselves or something that is told to us time and time again when people told you that you're ugly did you end up believing them
1: well the unfortunate answer is yes There was, you know, oftentimes that I internalized all of those negative words about my appearance, and it would have been impossible not to think that any of that was true, especially when I was, you know, very young. As I got older, you know, middle school, high school, became involved in different activities, I knew that a lot of what had been told to me, you know, by the bullies, you know, being ugly wasn't necessarily true, but that didn't stop me from being. You know, overly critical about my appearance, and you know, having been born uh, with a facial difference. But I will say that because you know, not only of my family, but my ability to become involved in other activities, and specifically learning the piano and becoming good at it, allowed me to develop other skills, other quote-unquote talents that had absolutely nothing to do with the way that I looked. And music has been. A theme for me throughout my entire life. I started playing piano at six and have continued to do so up until up until now and being able to have something that not only brought me joy that I enjoyed but actually brought other people joy that again had nothing to do with the way that I look or the way that I sounded was not only empowering but liberating. And I think if I hadn't had that, it would have been harder to not put so much emphasis or importance on my physical appearance because I had something else I could talk about. I had something else that I could demonstrate, show, and be known for aside from my facial difference.
0: Now, this one is a big question. If you had the power to go back and undo your cleft lip before you were born, completely altering the course of your own life, surely taking pain away from you, but also a lot of the self-love lessons that you now have. Would you do it?
1: If I could go back and wave a magic wand and not be born with a cleft, the short answer is yes, I would. And that may not be a popular answer or one that other individuals with a facial difference may say, but when I'm being truthful and honest with myself, I would, because the amount of pain, not only physical, but emotional that I went through was significant. And if I could take that away, you know, why wouldn't I? However, those kinds of questions can be very difficult to to rectify and also deal with because it's not a possibility. And so constantly thinking, oh, if I could just go back, you get stuck in sort of a hamster wheel of wanting to go back, realizing you can't go back, there's nothing I can do about it, you know, and it just becomes a cycle sort of of shame and embarrassment and that you're still thinking of yourself as, you know, that there's something wrong with you. So while I appreciate the question, it's one that I tend to not spend a lot of time on anymore because it doesn't serve me. It doesn't help me move forward into further acceptance of myself. And the situation that I find myself in, because yes, I have learned a lot of lessons. I have developed immense empathy, which I think is a skill that our society in general really could use a brush up on that recognizing pain in other people is actually quite a commonality and a common trait that we can then connect with others on and it's helped me in terms of imparting knowledge and wisdom onto my daughter as she comes up and navigates her interactions with her peers and you know instances of bullying teasing whatever's going to happen with her it's given me quite a unique and amazing perspective that because i am willing to acknowledge and own then I'm able to share that with others in the hopes that it will benefit them you know, at a much earlier age than it did myself.
0: Speaking of empathy and bullying, what message would you send out to the bullies of the world? Those ridiculing and hurting people with facial differences or other differences, what would you say to them?
1: Yeah, if I could have a message that could go out, not only to people who choose to be cruel and unkind to others, but just for everyone, is to do your best to heal your pain. Because I can say this now because I'm 45 and I can look back on all of these different situations that I encountered. Generally, those that teased or mocked or bullied me were fighting or dealing with their own pain inside. We've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. And I do believe that. And I think that a lot of people, myself included, We don't like feeling pain. We don't like feeling discomfort. And we will do anything that we can to distract ourselves from feeling that pain. And so especially as kids, when we're so young, we don't really have the resources or the tools to understand that that's what's happening. That's where our families, our parents, our caregivers, hopefully come into play and can recognize and discuss with them the real root of their actions. Because although some people are just cruel because they want to be, most people are acting out because they're hurting or they see something in someone else that triggers something in them, you know, a lack or an inadequacy that they then want to do whatever they can to feel superior over somebody. So I would say to people, don't be afraid of the pain. Do the work, acknowledge, understand, learn from, and turn your own wounds into wisdom and strength, and grace that you can give to other people that are struggling, either visibly or
0: not. Would you say that you are now, right here, able to wholeheartedly say that you love your face, your body, and yourself?
1: Well, can I say yes to two out of the three? (laughs) I've been actually doing a lot of work on body image, and I think for, you know, for women in particular, that has been an issue within our society for a long time. But Yes, I can say that I love my face, my body and myself. It's taken a long time to get there, especially when it comes to loving my face. But one thing that I've come across recently, I've been helping my mom go through some items in her her attic and finding a lot of old photos and finding photos of my father when he was young. He passed away back in 2004, but He was such a handsome man when he was young, and it's kind of fun looking back on those pictures. And one of the things that always stands out whenever I see pictures of him is, you know, I have his eyes, his hazel eyes. I have his skin tone. I have his dark hair. And even though he wasn't born with a cleft, his nose actually was shaped quite widely and if you didn't know it looking at me in some pictures, like we look very similar. And so if I were to say that I didn't love my face, I feel like I would be saying that, you know, I didn't love my father's eyes or I didn't love his beautiful olive skin, or I didn't love his salt and pepper hair. And there's kind of an honor in that when I think about him and it helps me see my own value and worth too, because I'm You know, I'm a reflection of him. And that gives me really a sense of of pride and love.
0: We talk a lot about beauty and appearance in our world today when we really do have much bigger fish to fry. Why do you think people get so hung up on something we really have very limited control over?
1: Well, my short answer to that is I believe it's a society issue. I think, especially just speaking from my experience as a woman, You can trace back, you know, not only the objectification of women, but the sort of dismissal and demeaning of women, hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And so it's not, you know, it's not a, I think, an easy answer. It's not a clean answer or a cut and dried way to be like, oh, if we only did this, then that would no longer exist. But I do think part of it is for everyone. You know, we're taught from very young ages that in order to be successful or admired or even loved it has everything to do with what we achieve on the outside you get a great job you go to a good school you have a fancy car you've got you know the biggest house on the block you go on elaborate vacations all the things that are external and we're told that the more we do and then the more that we you know show others for our material accomplishments, that that makes us a better, best person. And I think the body is just kind of, you know, the next layer in on that, that if we can be the thinnest or the strongest or, you know, the most beautiful, according to unattainable standards, that that means we're good when in fact, that's not at all the case. Some of the best people or the most loved, revered people that have ever existed are ones that a lot of times had nothing. You know, you think of Mother Teresa, you think of Nelson Mandela, you think of people who suffered traumas and setbacks, but also understood that it is through the giving that we actually become the best version of ourselves and working on ourselves from the inside out to become kind person a accountable person someone who can be trusted those are qualities that nothing material can ever give you and so it's a long road it's a lot of work to try to undo what we've all been taught from you know the very early stages of our life but it's important work and there are people out there trying to do that and even just doing the work within your own home you know it can be like that saying you know the Ripples on a pond; it will filter out to then your community, to the next town over, to your schools, to you know anything anywhere people are gathering. But it starts with it starts with the one person deciding that that's where they're going to put their effort to become the best version of themselves that they can be, and not worry about trying to reach unattainable standards in order to become what they think is what they need to be to be the best person for others, but not for themselves.
0: Obviously, there is so much more to you than what meets the eye. Our body, including our face, is a mere shell, one we should always try to treat with kindness and love, but it's a shell nevertheless. What would you say are some things people may miss about Vicky if they were to only go by appearances? What truly makes you unique? I used to
1: really struggle with, you know, if someone would ask you, you know, tell me about yourself, I would really struggle with coming up with an answer that wasn't just, oh, I live in Oregon or I, you know, very cut and dry facts. But i become more comfortable with acknowledging and then expressing to others what it is that I like to do or unique things about me. So right off the get go, one of the things that people would not know uh, just by looking at me. Is that I'm a pilot. Uh, I'm a general aviation pilot. That's actually how I met my now husband. And I, for years, received my commercial and flight instructor ratings and certificates. I worked as a flight instructor in California and Oregon, taught other people how to fly, amassed about almost 1,500 hours uh, of flight time. And it was just a wonderful, super fun time in my life. It was just in my, Early 20s, well, right after high school, really about 20 years old, that I started that journey. And that's something that always kind of shocks and surprises people. And it's something fun, you know, to talk about. Uh, another thing that people may not know is that uh, this is kind of silly, but, you know, I mentioned I love music, but I am a karaoke queen. Once I get started, you can't take the mic out of my hand. I love anything that has to do with music. Uh, a secret dream of mine would have been. And it's so funny, I, I would have loved to have been like a backup singer for somebody where I could just be out there. I didn't have to have the one, you know, the spotlight on me that everybody was really watching, but I could still go out there and have a good time. Uh, so those are kind of two, two fun things that I like to tell people.
0: One thing that really made me pause when I read your intake form was the fact that the community of people with facial differences is still very much stigmatized, underrepresented and ostracized especially in the media we consume i really tried hard to remember seeing someone with cleft lip or another type of facial difference in a movie or a tv show and i really could not think of anybody i know this is a similar experience for many marginalized groups of people and it makes me really sad i imagine a child at home Waiting to finally see somebody who looks like them, who could represent them. Why do you think there's such a clear underrepresentation of people with facial differences or even physical or mental disabilities in the media? And what can we do to allow for a more diverse picture that actually mirrors the real world and that allows for people to finally feel seen and heard?
1: It's been a struggle. I think you know like you it's very hard to come up with a list of names of people that you could you know say right off the bat oh they you know they have a facial difference they have a cleft and they're they're starring in the latest hollywood blockbuster but one thing maybe that you didn't think of and maybe your listeners didn't really think of is that there is representation of facial differences in movies and tv shows but it's generally in the villain characters You will see people that have a burned face, for example. I'm thinking of like one of the James Bond movies. You will see people that do have cleft. I'm thinking actually of Cobra Kai, that series. I believe it's on Netflix, maybe in the first season or so. There's a bully that has a cleft lip, although um, I don't believe he's a, I think he's turned, you know, changed his behavior in the series. But primarily where you see visible physical differences in media movies, and such like that has to do with negative connotations. And that's actually something that several groups in the facial difference community are working to address. It actually, this week, or I believe May is uh, like Facial Equality Month. It might actually be Facial Equality Week right now when we're recording this. And there are a couple of groups that have openly petitioned Hollywood and other media companies to stop casting or creating, I shouldn't say casting because generally it's all done with prosthetic makeup, but stop making villainous or evil characters with facial differences because that then translates to when you see a person with a burned face walking around town immediately you'll think of oh that that guy looks like that guy from that james bond movie or it it lends itself to not only stigma but dehumanization and that is a very slippery slope to then marginalizing ostracizing further villainizing groups that have any kind of you know difference that people can view as bad or negative so it's there it's just not in the way that we would like and uh, i think that with more activism from some of these larger uh, nonprofits and and facial difference groups, we'll begin to see changes with that. But it, you know, it, it is a grassroots movement and it starts from the bottom up. And it also kind of goes into head honchos and movie theaters or movie companies that think, you know, we have to get the most beautiful star, the most handsome leading man. Otherwise people won't come to the movies, you know? So there's kind of a, two two things going on here but the biggest issue at least affecting those of us in the facial difference community is, is you know to stop villainizing the way that we look because it really does you know affect us in in negative ways
0: would you say that the current debate about body positivity and the body positivity movement has also changed the narrative for people with facial differences
1: yeah i think that there is you know, there is potential and there's movement towards greater acceptance of you know bodies and faces of all shapes and sizes and but one thing that I just recently came across listening to uh, Glennon Doyle's podcast was she was talking about body positivity and how it's framed with in a way that like we are not our bodies our bodies are something that we can control you know manipulate but her stance was, you know, I am my body. And if I'm going to accept it, it's just, it's a basic acceptance of me. It's not a separate thing. You know, I am it. And so, especially just from my experience with a facial difference, it took a long time. But you know, my cleft doesn't necessarily define who I am, but it is me. And I think trying to separate the two can be difficult because. I don't know, it, it like takes a, a, a layer of humanity away from it. You know, I am my body, I am my face, I am, you know, my cleft. And if I'm going to love it, I have to love all of me. And so I think there's some, you know, discussion and ways that we frame how we talk about it. You know, we mentioned earlier, language is so important. And, you know, I could have gone down the route of more surgeries, I could have gone down the route of additional, you know, cosmetic surgeries to continue to try to change my face in order to make it quote unquote, like everybody else. But who am I doing that for? If it really was for me, that's one thing. But if I'm trying to do it so that I'll be better accepted by others outside of me, it's not going to work. I already have to come to the table with love and acceptance for myself. And then would be able to have the real impact of changing the world around me or changing, you know, at least my little, my little slice of the world here to be more outspoken to be more forward and i think you know if there was when i was growing up if there was someone who had a facial difference that was that i could see that was out there in a positive way advocating you know just showing up just being present someone that i could see on tv that would have been amazing and luckily there are people that are doing it now um one of the things I've been so impressed with is the younger facial difference generation that's coming up behind me. They have just, I mean, I'm constantly in awe of what they do and their tireless work to bring this conversation to the mainstream, to get more people talking about it uh, and thinking about how they interact with others. So it's a long, complex fight, I think, but every little bit helps. And you know, with Momentum, I think we'll get there.
0: You have turned your own lived experience into a fire that now burns for people for those still going through similar trauma with their own facial differences. Can you tell us about the work you do and what you are trying to accomplish?
1: Yeah, so through my own work to understand and heal from, you know, my trauma experience both medically and personally. It really has, like you said, it's lit a fire in me to help others in the cleft community. That's my uh, particular focus right now. But of course, I believe learning our personal skills of resilience would benefit everybody. Uh, but for the cleft community, it really, you know, getting down to it, I just want others to learn a little bit earlier than I did you know, how they can own their story, develop their personal skills of emotional resilience, and you know, not have to suffer as long as I did of denying, you know, this part of who I am. I really believe that, you know, working with parents of cleft affected children or cleft affected individuals themselves, if I can impart on them, you know, what my parents used for me, what I've learned, you know, as I've gone through my life, if I can help them get ahead a few steps ahead, just a little bit to feel more prepared to feel more empowered to feel more supported that they can you know, support their child or that that their child can learn the skills that they will need to not let kind of you know the negative influence from the outside world you know take root inside for very long so my my passion is the emotional resilience skills and helping people understand that they already have everything they need inside of them to handle whatever comes their way. They just have to tap into it and own it and they will be able to live a full and emotionally supported life.
0: Vicky, thank you so much for your time and for speaking to me so openly and honestly today. I loved our conversation and I hope it will resonate with a lot of people. Now, if somebody out there would like to get in contact with you, What do they need to do to reach out to you?
1: Well, thank you so much, uh, Stefan, for having me today. And I've enjoyed the conversation. And it's just been, you know, again, another part of my journey, being able to speak to others and share my experience and find, you know, our common ground and our commonalities. And it just helps me to know that we really all are looking for the same thing, which is connection and belonging. And so for people that want to connect with me and learn more about what I do the simplest way is uh, through my website all one word dragonflyparadigm.com everything on there talks about you know just getting the newsletter to signing up for my foundation of resilience workshop which is for parents of cleft affected children or you know contacting me for speaking at their events that is the the simplest one-stop shop to find me and i am on all social media at Dragonfly Paradigm, but there are links to that
0: on the website as well. Friends, what a powerful message Vicky decided to share with us today. We all realize that our body is a shell, but true self-love includes that shell. Acceptance of each other includes that shell as well. It always makes me pause when people out there argue that we should all just try to fit in to conform to standards set by others. Like anybody is asking to be different, to be mocked, ridiculed, hurt or even harmed. Nobody is. We do not get to choose how we are born but, thought evolutionists, we get to decide whether we will learn to love and leave a mark of kindness as our legacy or whether we decide to be cruel and hurtful to our fellow human beings. I. Personally, opt for kindness. And like I always say, make kindness your default. If you would like to learn more about Vicky and her important work for people with facial differences and their loved ones, please visit Vicky's website. It is dragonflyparadigm.com. That is dragonflyparadigm.com. I know Vicky would love to hear from you, and perhaps if enough of us band together over time, we can do our part to redefine true beauty as something that is inclusive and all-encompassing. We live in a diverse world, one that does not follow standards or norms when it comes to how people look. And how amazing is it that we all like different things and have different interests and don't look the same? We're not just one thing. And beauty is not just one thing either. In any case, friends, this is my call to action for you. If you liked today's episode, please like, comment, and most importantly, subscribe so you do not miss a thing. The next guest is only one week away, and you can find us on all major podcast apps such as Apple, Amazon, Google, or Spotify, as well as on YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Simply type in Thoughtvolution one word please or to make it all easier go to our website thoughtvolutionpodcast.com that is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com to find all the links and so 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 much more there's an episode guide our intake form for you to become a guest on the show yourself and our merch store i have not run into anyone with a thoughtvolution t-shirt hoodie or hat yet and that would really be a dream come true. <laughs> so if you have the means, please get yourself some of our fabulous merch to show the world how much you appreciate this podcast and its guests. I am wearing the I love you Lotzis hoodie as we speak, and it is lovely, positive, and beautiful. These will also be my parting words for today. I love all of you Lotzis, all of you out there. I appreciate you. I thank you so much for listening. And I cannot wait for us to meet again in exactly one week. Please remember to always, always, always be kind to each other. I'll see you next week.